Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hey there. Welcome to today's program. I am delighted that you are able to join in. No, it's not at 3.30 p.m. Eastern. It's 3 o'clock Eastern. need to change that recording, too. You know, as they say, and everybody feels this way these days, only so many hours in a day, but I think I'm going to have that fixed before we're on again next week. I think I can do it. Anyways, welcome to today's program. My goal for the day is to get through as many of the questions I've received by email lately as I possibly can. Of course, we skipped last week. Um, uh, Our plan of having Anytown Elementary start uh, in October, well, that's not going to happen. They are probably going to be starting in December instead. Um, So that's still on the burner. It's just that um, we've had a slight delay in getting started with Anytown Elementary. Um, You know that the Lives in the Balance, second annual Lives in the Balance conference is coming up, don't you? November 16th, Portland, Maine. Uh, The focal point of the conference is going to be to hear from the Educators in Maine who have been making collaborative problem-solving happen school-wide in their buildings. So if you are an educator, the focus of this year's conference is on collaborative problem-solving in schools. There is an annual conference page on the Lies in the Balance website where you can get all of the details. the uh, theme of the conference is um, we're not there yet, but we're getting there, and you'll hear how we're getting there <coughs> Excuse me, when you attend the conference. If you're, we're not done yet, not that we're not there yet, Ugh. we're not done yet, Well, we're not there yet either. There's no there there when it comes to helping behaviorally challenging students, you're Discipline program is always a work in progress. But the theme is we're not done yet, and we will be hearing from the educators in the schools in Maine that have been participating in a program and in a project funded by the Juvenile Justice Advisory Group here in Maine. Yes, Lives in the Balance is based in Maine as well now, Portland, Maine. Um and you'll hear about how they did it, the hurdles they faced, how they got it organized, how they overcame the hurdles, where things are at now, data, 
got some great keynote speakers, including Richard Ross, a um, who's from the University of uh, California at Santa Barbara, who has um, been funded by the Annie E. Casey Foundation to document what things are like in juvenile prisons in the United States uh, through photography. He's a photographer. And he'll be kicking things off just to get us started on how high the stakes are. We will then hear from another keynote speaker, Barry Studley, who um, is the Associate Commissioner for Juvenile Services in the state of Maine, where they've been implementing collaborative problem solving in their juvenile system for a very long time, and um, what they've done in that system to um, make Maine a shining star for juvenile detention systems throughout the world. We'll then hear from the rest of the day from, along with uh, um, awarding our annual Trailblazer Awards, our recognition awards to people who are making it happen in their schools and in their communities throughout the world. And then we'll spend the afternoon, we'll spend the rest of the morning hearing from the educators in the schools that have been doing it. And then the afternoon, we'll make sure that you get what you need, depending completely on your level of experience and knowledge of the model. If you can't make it November 16th in Portland, Maine, if you can't make it, we'll be uh, filming the conference, and we will, as we did with last year's conference, streaming the, con- the um, highlights on the Lives in the Balance website. We hope you can make it. If you can't make it, you get to be there anyways won't be streamed live, but we will stream the video as quickly as we can after the conference. All right. My goal for the day, as I've already announced, is to get through as many questions as I possibly can. Let's see how quickly we can go, and not that speed is the goal here. If we uh, get a caller, we'll, we'll hear what the caller has to say, and if we don't, then I'll just get through these questions. We will be hearing in the coming weeks from uh, some of the folks in some of the schools in Maine who've been making collaborative problem solving happen in their buildings, sort of personal interviews on this radio program. But we will also be hearing about them in more uh, hear from them in more abbreviated form uh, at the conference. Um, Here we go. Here's email number one. Got this one in late September. Hi, Dr. Green. I love your radio shows. Thank you and the Collaborative Problem Solving Framework. Thank you. I work as a school psychologist in an elementary school in an urban school district. I had the opportunity to meet with all of the teachers at grade level meetings to talk about changing our lenses regarding behavioral challenges. Some teachers really took hold of the idea of lagging skills, yet are feeling a bit overwhelmed as the norm in their classroom seems to be children with lagging skills. Talk about lagging skills in executive functioning, language processing, cognitive flexibility, emotion regulation, and social skills just to get the ball rolling. An idea one of the teachers had was to try to come up with some best practices that could be used in whole classrooms to address these lagging skills. I have some ideas like regular desk checks, simplified directions paired with visuals, modifying the amount of work assigned, help signals, etc. Could you weigh in? Am I on the right track? 
Do you have any specific ideas for whole class modifications to address lagging skills? Thank you for your question. Mm, well, I think you are definitely on the right track to help teachers view the behavioral challenges of their students through the lenses of lagging skills and unsolved problems. You are spot on. Um, no problem there. Are there things teachers could do in their classrooms to address the lagging skills of all of their students? There I get a little bit hung up, and here's what I'm getting hung up on. The lagging skills are going to be different for each student. That's number one. Is it a, is it a good idea for teachers to be cognizant of how much work they're assigning and whether the majority of the kids in their classroom can do that work. Absolutely. Is it a bad idea to provide simplified directions paired with visuals? Absolutely not. Sounds great to me. Um, is it a bad idea to help all students learn help signals so that they can let the teacher need to know that they need help? Sounds fine to me. But I find that, um, well, a few things. I think the lagging skills are going to be so individualized, so specific to each student. And these lagging skills tend to be hard to teach directly, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. That um, I'm actually, while I might potentially be enthusiastic about if we notice that there's something that's true of almost every kid in the classroom, doing things classroom-wide to help them out, like making sure that what we're assigning is congruent with what kids can actually do. No problem with that. I think that I tend to view, well, I know, I don't think it, I, I know that I view collaborative problem solving as being most effective when it is implemented at an individual level. Now, is that to say that there aren't discussions that could be had with the entire group about problems that address that, that affect the whole group and are those very productive discussions and that can they be collaborative in their nature? Absolutely. In fact, that's about as beautiful as it gets, whole class discussions on collaborative problem solving. Beautiful. Um, but I do think that the lagging skills of each student are going to be so individualized that it's going to be hard for a whole group approach to address the lagging skills of each individual student. That's what I think. Now, let me make things a little bit more complicated. Um, it's actually not the lagging skills you're going to be working on directly most of the time. Most of the time, lagging skills are worked on indirectly by solving problems collaboratively. Um, you're teaching the skills a kid is lacking indirectly 
by solving the problems that are associated with those lagging skills directly. So here's the example I always use. I've, I've probably used this on a program lately. I can't remember, but let's say that Bobby is having difficulty making transitions. That's a lagging skill. Let's say that one transition he's having trouble making is moving from choice time to math. It's an unsolved problem associated with that lagging skill. Let's say we solve that problem collaboratively with Bobby. A few important things have now happened. First of all, we will have solved the problem, so the challenging behaviors that are associated with that problem have now subsided. Solved problems don't set in motion challenging episodes. Only unsolved problems do. But secondly, we will have now... Oh, secondly, well, right. So secondly, the um, we will have now gotten in one practice session on dealing better with transitions. Now, is Bobby good at making transitions yet? No, but Bobby does now have one solution in his what I do when I'm having trouble making transitions file. And um, so he's not good at making transitions yet, but at least we've gotten the ball rolling. He's got one thing in his what I do when I have difficulty making transitions file. How, how will he get more solutions in there? Well, by us solving some other problems involving difficulty making transitions. And what we're doing now is we are building a repertoire for Bobby of how to make transitions. He's got a problem-solving repertoire in the transition-making department. Will some of those solutions in his repertoire help him solve other transitions more adaptively? I would expect so. Can that repertoire be taught directly? I don't think so. I think the best way to teach that repertoire is indirectly. And now we've gotten the ball rolling by helping Bobby more easily make the transition from choice time to math. The unsolved problems of the kids in the class, even though they may share similar lagging skills, the unsolved problems, those are going to be very different across different kids that means that what that even though there may be some group things we are doing with collaborative problem solving and even though there might be some group modifications and discussions that we might have with the entire group most of the problem solving is going to be individualized except for those discussions that are about problems that affect the entire class and bullying is sometimes a good example of that So there's the answer to that part of the question. But do I think you've gotten the ball rolling? Yes, and good for you. Um, one other thing you said that I wanted to comment on. Um, uh, here's the sentence. Some teachers really took hold of the idea of lagging skills yet are feeling a bit overwhelmed as the norm in their classroom seems to be children with lagging skills. Yes. And sometimes 
people say, geez, my whole class is lacking skills. I should teach those skills to the group. That would be more efficient. Probably not. I understand the thinking. But probably not. And I get it totally. Just think that the skills are going to be taught indirectly. The unsolved problems of the different members of the group are going to be very different. I do get it. When people feel overwhelmed, sometimes they say, well, then let's just do it for everybody. But it's unlikely to be the most effective way to go on that. And secondly, if you have teachers doing what a lot of the schools in Maine are doing, the 15 minutes a day idea, where every teacher in a school is devoting 15 minutes a day, they're carving out 15 minutes a day to solving problems with individual students. As I've said before, I've done the math on this. That's an hour and a quarter a week, five hours a month, 45 hours every school year that every teacher in the building is devoting to solving problems with kids. You got yourself a problem-solving school, and by the end of a school year, you're going to have a lot of teachers who aren't feeling so overwhelmed anymore because they can look back on the school year they just completed, and they can look in the rearview mirror and see all of those problems they solved. Now they're not so overwhelmed. Very overwhelming in the beginning, which I totally get not so overwhelming once people get the ball rolling and get really good at plan B. Good for you for getting the ball rolling in your building. Keep going. All right, here's the next one. Hi, Dr. Green. I'm trying to help a student in my school. I am new to CPS. I am the nurse and CPS is not integrated into the school in which I work. There is one student I feel could really benefit from the approach. He is always in trouble and makes statements that no one likes him at school. I know the teacher and classmates are tired of his behavior. Staff blames mom. Now I have to come out of the email for a second and just make my usual comment about how productive it always is for the folks at school to blame the folks at home for the unsolved problems that aren't getting solved at school and for the behaviors that are being exhibited at school when mom's not around. But all of that is sarcasm, of course. Now back to the email. They are talking about shipping him out. I see a very lonely, scared, and sad 11-year-old boy. When I've tried to have a conversation with him after an episode this morning, he threatened to kill the bus driver, he shared with me that he was upset because he's in trouble all the time. Wouldn't share specifics about the bus and then said he wished he could toss a desk or hurt the administrator who would be disciplining him. I heard him say he is upset about losing fun time and having everyone hate him. He said, it sounds like you're really upset about losing free time and feel like everyone hates you. I reassured him that I like him and he can talk to me anytime. I think I missed getting to the real concern when we were talking. He went straight to his own solutions, all various forms of violence. How do I guide him to solutions that are good for him? He can only think of negative ones right now. I attempted to offer a few nonviolent solutions. This didn't work. I decided to give it a rest for today and 
left with the message that I like him and care about him, along with an open offer to talk to me any time to help solve his concerns. Am I on the wrong path? Something else I should have said or done? Suggestions, please. I don't want to see him pushed away or have him feeling like he is the enemy any longer. Thank you so much for your questions and for describing this to us. This scene, uh, regrettably, not uncommon at all in schools. And good for you for trying to help and really good for you for seeing something in him that other people are apparently having difficulty seeing. Now, they may have good reasons for having difficulty seeing what you're seeing because they have been perhaps dealing with him for a long time. And if he's threatening violence, of course, maybe they're scared too. So, the, the, of course, here's here's the first thing we need to do. We may, need to make sure he's safe. So we need to keep him talking. And if at any point you feel that his threats of violence need to be taken very seriously, of course, you need to get him evaluated by somebody who can make sure that he's safe. But besides that, um, the part that you're particularly asking for guidance on is um, him going to his own solutions, and I get that. Um, I'm really glad you had him talking in the empathy step. The big question is, um, were you talking about too many unsolved problems at once? Um, there's the bus, there's people not liking him. Um, I'm not sure how many unsolved problems you were trying to talk about at the same time, but you want to try to talk about only one at a time. And so an example of one unsolved problem is what's going on on the school bus. Unless there are multiple unsolved problems on the school bus, any one of which could upset him, in which case you have more than one school bus problem to talk about. So that's that's potential issue number one. You you may have been talking to him about many things, and he, of course, has uh, a rather efficient approach to those many things. He'll just commit violence on all of them. That's, of course, not ideal. But that's efficient. Sometimes when kids feel and adults feel overwhelmed by the sheer number of unsolved problems that forms the mountain of unsolved problems that they're dealing with, um, they tend to come up with solutions that are, let's just sweep them all away in one fell swoop solutions. So a big favor you could do him, actually, is to identify the many different unsolved problems that are causing him to have difficulty. So that would actually be a big favor. So, by the way, no, no, nothing criminal about you having had a conversation with him about all of them, but now if we really want to help him, we need to start identifying single unsolved problems and only talk about one at a time. That's my biggest recommendation. The fact that he's jumping to, to what we would call one fell swoop solutions not unusual, but especially when people are completely overwhelmed by the sheer number of problems that they're facing. But you can do something about that by helping him focus on one at a time. 
because there is no one fell swoop solution to the many problems that have accumulated over time that have people getting sick of his behavior. Now, the good news, if there is good news, um, it is good that he is upset that he's in trouble all the time. That's good. It is good that he hates having everybody hate him. Those are good. Because what that says is, it still bothers him. His difficulties still bother him. I worry most about the kids who've been in trouble for so long, been overcorrected, overdirected, overpunished for so long that they've actually thrown in the towel on things getting better. And now they're no longer upset about things being bad because they have lost hope that things will ever be better. Them I worry about more. I worry about this kid, too. His threats of violence are worrisome. I'm glad he's talking about it. A lot of the kids who have committed violent acts in our schools didn't necessarily tell anybody, he's talking to you. That is huge. So I'm I'm just talking about how to make the talking even more productive. It is huge that he's talking to you. So break it down into single unsolved problems. Very good that you are letting him know that you care. Very good that you're letting him know that you like him. Before you guys can think of solutions together, you've got to do the define the problem step, which is you getting your concerns on the table. Then you two can brainstorm solutions that will move him off of him thinking that violence is the way to solve these problems. Now the bad news. I don't think you can do it alone. I don't think you can do it alone. I think some of your energy may need to be devoted to getting the people he's having difficulty with to get on board. I don't think you can do it alone. I think you can let him know that you care and that you like him and that he can talk to you any time alone. But so long as his unsolved problems remain unsolved... He's still getting in trouble. He still thinks everybody hates him. I think you're off to a very good start. But you can't do it alone. I wonder who else in your building might be interested in joining with you to learn more about this and get better at it and help the other kids in your building who are having similar difficulties. I'm delighted to assist by phone. You're welcome to call in anytime. That number again, 646-727-2691. We almost never get calls on this Program probably because it's not at the ideal time of day, but there kind of is no ideal time of day, so luckily many thousands of people listen to the archive. Let's move on to another question. 
Uh, Hi, Dr. Green. My son is in a charter school that places a lot of emphasis on obedience to rules and regulations. They have infractions that are impossible for my child not to break at some point during the day. Yesterday he was suspended from school because he was impulsive and tried to get online, in line, I think, by pushing four students. Their recourse was to place him in another classroom for the entire day. They put him in kindergarten. He's in the second grade. He has an IEP in place. They have a negative response about infractions every day, and he has been pulled out of class and sent home twice in one month. He's in a CTT classroom. I actually don't know what that means, but it seems that the special education teacher who's in the room has no idea what special needs are or how to solve problems. I am very angry, to say the least. Tomorrow we will meet with the staff. They sent a letter stating that he is now eligible for substantially equivalent alternative instruction, which is approximately two hours a day, during which time I have to be present. Is this legal? Well, I'm not um, able to weigh in on the legality. You need somebody who knows special ed law a bit more intimately than I do. I don't know if what they're doing is legal, but it doesn't sound good. doesn't sound good. I also don't know if the fact that he's in a charter school, you might know better than me whether uh, all the rules apply, special education law rules apply to charter schools. I feel terrible that that's something I don't know. It's something I should know, but it's not something that I know. I can look into it for you. Um, but the, the So in terms of the legality, I think I'm the wrong guy. In terms of the scenario, I think you've got a tough question to answer is this school and its whole mentality as you're describing it obedience to rules and regulations you're describing that as an emphasis a lot of behaviorally challenging kids are unlikely to do well in a building that is obsessed with rules and regulations now I don't know if they would describe themselves the same way, and I realize that you are, um, as you're saying, very angry to say the least. So I don't obviously know what school you're talking about, so I can't offer you any alternative point of view on what they're really about. But as you're describing it, I'm not too optimistic that this school if it's truly got the mentality that you're describing, is going to be able to change its mentality enough to be interested in solving problems a different way. And the reason I'm saying that is because, I mean, I, don't, I never give up hope. I never say never. But if, if their emphasis in the building is obedience to rules and regulations... You'd know better than me how receptive they're going to be to doing things in a different way, trying on new lenses, and recognizing that there are far more important things to emphasize 
than rules and regulations. The reason I'm saying that is because schools that have a strong emphasis on rules and regulations also tend to have a very strong emphasis on uh, blind adherence to authority, adult-imposed consequences. Your, your son is on the receiving end of these already. That's That's why I'm not sounding too optimistic here, that this building is interested in changing enough to be what your son needs. And that's always sort of the um, dilemma when I'm asked to intervene on behalf of a single behaviorally challenging student in a building. Um, is this building able to change enough, or at the very least, the people who are intimately involved with this child, to, to make it work with this child who's not a plan A kid, and for whom a strong emphasis on rules and regulations is simply not going to be where the action's at. And it's always an interesting, you know, I'm always trying to figure that out. Is this school able to change enough to meet the needs of this student? Now, special ed law says that they need to. I know enough about special ed law to know that. They need to meet your son's needs. I don't know enough about the legality of your son's situation in a charter school to know that in his case. But in general, I always have to ask the question, can this school change enough to meet this kid's needs? And if not, do we need to find a school that is a better fit for your son? You know, I brought this up on the parents' radio program this morning. Apparently, you're not alone in your situation of having a school that is... Um, you might be wondering, why did I just do that question on the educator radio program? Because I don't think it's terrible to have educators here help the folks at home are sometimes feeling about how things are going at school. I don't think anybody at school wants to be viewed as being so rigid and inflexible that they can't meet the needs of a student in their building, although there will be times, and we hope that they're rare, that a school can't meet the needs of a student in their building, and then it's time to think about having the student go someplace that could meet the student's needs better. But we don't want the inflexibility of the school to be a major contributing factor to that. I think that's the main point. So I brought this up on the parents' program this morning. The um, physician in, I think it was Georgia, although I don't remember well, who's been prescribing, I can find out really quickly because I we posted this in the um, good and bad news section of the Lives in the Balance website. Hang on one sec. This is in the New York Times. The headline was, Attention Disorder or Not, Pills to Help in School. I'll read a little of it. When Dr. Michael Anderson hears about his low-income patients struggling in elementary school, he usually gives them a taste of some powerful medicine, Adderall, stimulant medication. 
Although ADHD is the diagnosis Dr. Anderson makes, he calls the disorder made up and an excuse to prescribe the pills to treat what he considers the children's true ill. Poor academic performance in inadequate schools. And I was right. He's in Cherokee County, north of Atlanta. And here's what he says. I don't have a lot of choice, said Dr. Anderson. We've decided as a society that it's too expensive to modify the kid's environment. So we have to modify the kid. Dr. Anderson is one of the more outspoken proponents of an idea that is gaining interest among some physicians. They are prescribing stimulants to struggling students in schools starved of extra money, not to treat ADHD necessarily, but to boost their academic performance. Let me uh, keep quoting here. This is not Dr. Anderson. This is Dr. Ramesh Raghavan, um, a mental health services researcher at Washington University in St. Louis, who says, we as a society have been unwilling to invest in effective non-pharmaceutical interventions for these children and their families. We are effectively forcing local community psychiatrists to use the only tool at their disposal, which is psychotropic medications. Dr. Anderson's instinct, he said, is that of a social justice thinker who is evening the scales a little bit. He said that children he sees with academic problems, boy, he could have taken this right from collaborative problem solving, are essentially mismatched with their environment, square pegs chafing the round holes of public education. Wow. So good news for our emailer, but bad news for all of the rest of us. Um, Maybe there's a school that's a better fit for your son. I hope so. Unless your school that your son is in is more amenable to thinking about themselves than you are describing them as being, And that's always the hope. Um, Dr. Anderson seems to have noticed that that's low odds. I'm not quite there. Do we have time for one more? Uh, uh, I'm trying. I'll try. Dr. Green, recently I have been promoted to a behavior specialist at a school for the deaf. Someone on your website, while looking for answers about students who do not show a typical ABC pattern to behavior that can be modified by rewards and punishments and have been spending any spare time that I have listening to the modules in the listening library and the Lives in the Balance website. Thanks for the plug. I've already started the process with one elementary student here who is a typical language user, though we haven't made it past the empathy step and definitely need more time. I would love to use this approach with other students, but I am hesitant due to the severe language delays of many of our population experience. Do you have any hints or suggestions for how to navigate this experience using pictures, role play, or play therapy for those students who do not have the words to specify, excuse me, to identify situations and experiences, especially those outside of school which may drastically impact behavior but remain unseen to the teachers? population I'm working with is age 3 to 22, and many on my caseload have multiple disabilities, especially cognitive de- delays and autism spectrum disorder, along with their deafness. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. 
Here we go. Now, first of all, first thing I should say is that there are programs in the listening library for educators, I believe, but possibly for parents. And it would probably be in one of the sections, I'm not going to be able to find it now, that um, are about doing collaborative problem solving with specific types of kids. That's where you'll find it. Um, so that's the first thing I'll say is that I've got about uh, four and a half minutes to answer, but I've done entire programs, 45 minutes worth, on this question for um, in, in and those are posted in the listening library. So that's that's answer number one. Answer number two. Um, this part of your email that I have slight concerns about. Yes, you can do. You can solve problems collaboratively with kids who have significant language delays or are completely nonverbal. The answer is yes. And yes, you can use pictures, as would any good speech and language therapist, to depict the unsolved problems, the concerns about those unsolved problems, and potential solutions in pictures. Yes, that can be done too. And yes, with very so-called low-functioning kids who may not even know that there are problems that need to be solved because they actually conceptually don't have problem, don't don't know about problems. They don't sort of don't have that file. Yes, you can do some laying of the groundwork there and help kids recognize what's a problem and identify for them. In in the same way that we wanted to do with one of our earlier emailers with a apparently fully language-functioning kid, but who was overwhelmed by all the problems he was having to deal with and was trying to come up with a one-fell-swoop solution, it is just as helpful to help so-called low-functioning kids come up with the same list so that they can actually start to conceptualize that each represents an individual problem that needs to be solved. That's good. It's good for any kid good for kids who we might call low-functioning. Good to help them identify their concerns in pictures. And by the way, Google Images, this is also good, but there are many programs and apps that can help you depict unsolved problems and concerns and potential solutions in pictures. By the way, it might also be a good idea to build a solutions file for the kid. Many so-called low-functioning kids aren't aware that if you have a problem, the goal is to come up with a solution. So that, that sometimes needs to be built in. Um, and as I always say, the way that I do that is not really any different than the way we would teach a kid what's a cow and that a cow says moo. The, 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 the teaching is no different than helping kids identify animals and the sounds that they make identify problems and their concerns about them. It's not dramatically different. My biggest concern is that you seem focused, and I'm going fast now because the recording has just told me that I only have about a minute and a half left. My biggest concern is that you seem to be primarily interested in focusing on things going on outside of school 
that may dramatically impact behavior at school but remain unseen to the teachers. I would suggest that those are going to be the absolute hardest ones to focus on in the beginning with a child who is has significant delays in language. I think the easiest ones to work on are going to be the ones that you do know about, not the ones that you don't know about. I'm not exactly sure that, and, I, and actually I'm completely sure that that would not be the ideal place to start. So that's my biggest feedback on your questions. I'd start with the ones you know about because you need to build in a language vocabulary for this kid, and that's going to be a lot easier for the ones that you're actually aware of. Well, you know, I could spend a lot of time more on that one, but alas, we are regrettably out of time for today. Thank you for listening in again. Hope you'll join in next week when we do this again. Talk to you then.